You're listening to the Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle Dolan as she interviews a range of prominent leaders about their experiences. Her guests share stories about challenges they have faced during their career, as well as important learning opportunities or moments of insight. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are encouraged to embrace authenticity and real communication. So welcome to this edition of Authentic Leadership. And I am so excited today because I have my pal, my buddy, Lane Beachley with me. And I was just, uh, I normally try to decide what title, but you know what I'm going to go with, Lane, to introduce you? Australian Sporting Royalty. How's that? I like it. You like it? You like it? Do I get a crown? Yeah, you get a crown. You get a crown. (laughs) It's in the mail. It's in the mail. (laughs) Uh, well, I could, you know, I could introduce you as, you know, seven-time world surfing world champion, most successful surfer in the history of anything, um, Order of Australia, uh, Chair of Surf Australia, founder of your own foundation, and I'm sure that's even just scratching, founder of the Awake Awake Academy, is it? Yep. Yeah, um, and I'm sure that's just scratching the surface of all the amazing things and titles that you have um but anyway welcome thanks Ral. it's great to be here great to talk to my mentor without <laughs> being mentor <laughs> yes yes i uh, for those of you that don't know i mentored lane in surfing it's why she's <laughs> <laughs> now they know you're lying <laughs> So, Lane, we are gonna we're gonna cover a whole heap of things today, and God knows where we'll go, knowing us too. Um, but let's let's start with the basics. For those that don't, I mean, probably everyone knows about your you know sporting triumphs. But where did where did you grow up? What was your life like growing up? Some would say I haven't yet. However, for those that do know me, know that I have grown up, and I grew up in Manly Beach. So I grew up in the suburbs surrounding Manly, uh, Balgala Heights, and then Ferry Bower, and. Um, but I grew up on the beach, in the water, in the sand, you know, in the sun. I've been sun-kissed since before I could walk. Yeah, and you still live. You still live in Manly, and yeah. I live at the northern end at the Queenscliff. Mm. Uh, I graduated from the southern end all the way to the northern end, and uh, yeah, the ocean and the beach and that whole lifestyle is still my life. It's, yeah, uh, what I live for. I remember my husband said to me, hey, Lane Beachley, she's a surfer and her name's Beachley. And I went, yeah. I go, yeah, I bet you never want, no one's ever pointed that out to her before. Tell him he owes me a dollar because if I got got a dollar, geez, I'd I'd have a much bigger house. Seriously, he said it to me like it was a revel, like I should tell you, I should tell you that because that could be an insight you don't know. Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. (laughs) You know what? I was at a comedy show. And, um, and it was where stand-up comics were training and they actually go, had to go and put on their performance and one of the guys was one of our mates. But the Walmart Act was a professional comic and he used the whole thing about, what about these people that have names that match their vocation? And like Tiger Woods, you know, and Lane Beachley. And he didn't realise I was in the audience. And someone just started pointing at me because I was like second row back. And, he, and it totally threw him. The rest of his <laughs> the rest of his set was just blown because he couldn't believe that I was in the audience and he was uh, using my name. That would have freaked him out. You should have yelled out, oh, haven't heard that one before. Yeah, yeah, you owe me a dollar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, talking about dollars, what was your first job? Because I know you actually had several, several jobs while you were, you know, on the professional surfing circuit, but what was your first job you ever did? 
my first job was pulling the newspaper trolley up this really big green grass hill next to our house for the paper delivery guy or girl uh, and getting paid 20 cents every time I did it every afternoon after school. That was your, the start of your intense training. That was the start of my entrepreneurial career. How old were you there? I was around about 11. Oh, wow. And then my next job uh, was at the surf shop, but I didn't actually get paid for it. Um, they used a, they used a uh, well, I used to store my surfboard out the back of the shop. So they said, well, for rent, for storing your board out the back of the shop, even though it, you know, it took up very little room, um, you're going to have to come in here on weekends when you're not surfing and you have to sweep the sand off the floor and, you know, arrange the, the T-shirts and fold shirts and shorts and things like that. So I did that for a little while and uh, until they saw how dedicated and they recognized my work ethic and then actually gave me a job and then they sponsored me and started paying for my prize money to enter events as a as an amateur yeah and that correct me if I'm wrong but that was the catalyst for you to start um your foundation where you sort of gave um upcoming people a bit of a helping hand with the cash donation is that correct well actually that came from another job so (laughs) when I joined um so I was working in the surf shop as about, I think I started there when I was about 14 and I worked in the surf shop until basically I left high school. And then when I left high school, I realized I need a little bit more work and uh, a little bit more income. So I started working in one of the most salubrious establishments in Manly called the Old Manly Boat Shed. And if you've been there, you'll know what it's all about. It's a dive underground where your feet stick to the floor and there's uh, smoke billowing out of the doors and condensation off the ceiling and some um, obscure clientele. So I used to work there from six at night till three in the morning. And I did that for a couple of years. And so my week would be nine to five at the surf shop, Monday to Friday, and then six till 11, Thursday, Friday night in the pizza shop where I was making delivering pizzas. And Saturday and Sunday night was six till three a.m at old manly boat shed and i just did that week after week month after wow. year after year so where did you actually get time to train to surf well, i didn't get much time to train or surf so it was between seven and nine in the morning basically so <laughs> more to the point when did i get time to sleep on weekends yeah. very little but uh when i was young i had the you know the luxury of youth on my side but to go back to your to your question it was one night after work where the uh, owner of the old manly boat shed sat me down. He said, I can see how hard you're working and I see how much you want it. And I know your dream is to become a world champion. Here's $3,000. Here's your next round world, round the world air ticket. And that was the catalyst moment. That's when I went, oh, you mean someone actually believes in me? Someone can see and mm-hmm. believe and then invest in me other than me? This is amazing. So fast forward to my fifth consecutive world title and I'm offered the opportunity to start my own foundation. And basically they said, you just tell me what it's called, what it does and we'll fund it. I went, well, I want to give young women because of the disparity that I experienced as a surfer, I want to give young women and old women, I don't care. I just want to give women Mm. the opportunity to achieve their potential and fulfill their potential before they show signs of fulfilling it. Because we yeah. give everyone everything when they're there and it's actually on the way through that they and the way up is when they need the most amount of support. 
So I provided, with Aim for the Stars, over 15 years, we provided around about a million dollars in scholarships to young girls and women to achieve their dreams in all walks of life, sport, music, science, business, culture, academia. And I know you've attended a few of the galas that we had over the years and it was such an inspiring event and it was such a, a rewarding experience to be able to ring every one of these girls who, have, you know, sometimes I've been their last resort you know, they've just been seeking financial support from here, there and everywhere. And finally, they see the fact that someone like me will pick up the phone and say, hi, I see you, I hear you, I believe in you, here's some cash, go do it. And no pressure if you don't, but geez, it'd be great to see it if you do. Yeah, that's amazing. That, that would have been some amazing phone calls you got to yes. make to those, the people. That oh, got, it was. Yeah. Um, was the focus on women is because you saw, I guess, the disparity in the pay gap when you were in the in the industry, which is I'm, I'm assuming is probably still there, is it? To a degree. I mean, surfing in 2018, well, actually it was launched in 2019. It was the first sport to announce pay equity. And we're, I'm extremely proud of that. But yes, it was the pay gap. It was the opportunity gap. It was the recognition gap. It was the respect gap. It, there was a lot of gaps. There was a lot of, a lot of disparity. You know, when I joined the Pro Tour in 1990, we were so undervalued and so disrespected and so misrepresented that it, it made it very challenging for me to be able to break through and change that and challenge the status quo. And as you may have read in Womankind, um, the, where Kirsten Ferguson talks about when women find themselves in an environment where they're devalued, they devalue themselves and they devalue each other. And that's the environment that I walked into. So to change that over the years that I was on tour was really part of my vision. You know, it was part of my legacy piece to make sure that women's surfing is left in a better place than when I found it. Mm. Hey, uh, I'm going to swap to a question. I've got I've crowdsourced questions for this interview, but one of the one of the questions that someone wanted to ask you is that how does Lane see her legacy now she's retired as a surfing champion? Is that, is that, I, I, and I, as soon as I got that, I go, I, I think you're going to leave a lot of legacies. Um, but is that one of them? You think changing the equity? Yeah. Yeah. Pay equity is definitely part of my legacy. It's not my whole legacy because so many people contributed to that, but it was definitely part of it. And that, that came down to the 15 of the 19 years I was on tour, I served on the board of directors for 15 years. And that was definitely part of my argument week in, week out, was requesting prize money increases and and uh, also challenging the way that the industry represented women mm. and um, that whole sexualized concept of, of women, especially we get paid just parade around in bikinis all day, every day. And, um, but that's part of it. Uh, also making it uh, a more inclusive and equal environment for women to be a part of, um, to make it safer for women to participate, to encourage more women to get involved, um, you know, to encourage women in judging and coaching. And um, yeah, there was a variety of ways in which I contributed to where we see women surfing today. But uh, I'm just really grateful that my predecessors laid down that platform for me Then I was able to step in. And I've got a more probably, I'd say I've got a more political and strategic uh, approach to these things than most athletes would. That's why a lot of people ask me, when am I going to go into politics? <laughs> like, why would I bother? <laughs> um, <laughs> we can go down that track some other time. But um Ultimately, yeah, it was about challenging the status quo, paving the way for future generations and then making it safer and more fun for women to be involved in a sport that I feel is one of the most enviable sports in the world. Yeah, yeah. How did you, how was your reaction when it made the Olympics? 
this oh, year. I was so excited. You know, there was a lot of critics and a lot of naysayers, but when it got announced back in 2018, oh, we were, I was so thrilled. I was really, really, oh, actually it was 2017 maybe. Anyway, mm. um, just so excited. And uh, and that's when we got kicked, you know, we kicked things into gear at Surfing Australia to create that whole Olympic team environment. I mean, surfing such an individualistic pursuit. So to then see us collaborate and work as a team, I knew it was going to take some time. And I feel that out of all the new sports, I feel surfing was definitely one of the ones that really, un- really embraced it you know they embraced the opportunity and they were the epitome of uh the olympic spirit and uh i was really proud of how our team performed i know our results weren't as strong as we expected but we've obviously taken away some valuable learnings from that and we'll be applying that for future olympic campaigns Mm. i um I love the story you share with me and I'd love you to share it here again is I hope I'm not putting you on the spot because, you you know, sometimes when you tell a story, the other person remembers it and you go, I can't remember telling you that story, is no. when you were approached to be um, the chair of Surfing Australia. So you're on the board, but when they, you know, I think you, you were out for lunch or something and they asked you. Well, I staged a bit of a mutiny. So I was dissatisfied with how our current chairman was behaving. and There was a bit of sexist undertones and, and quite a lot of chauvinistic um, comments that I just deemed to be completely unacceptable for 2015. And having been on the board for about five years, I asked two of my board members to come to a cafe in Manly because I wanted to have a talk to them about what the possibilities are of, of changing this dynamic or how do we go about calling him out on it or how do we go about doing something about it because we all set the standards by what we allow and if we continue to allow these things to go unchecked and uncalled out then we're suggesting that it's okay and I wasn't okay with it and being referred to as the token female and things like that just did not sit well with me and you know what sometimes when things get said to you and you go did that just happen and then you don't respond and then they get away with it well that's what happened to a point where I was like all right enough yeah <laughs> I'm not hoping with this anyway yes I took the person who I thought was being earmarked as being the next chairman and um and expressed my concerns and his point of view was well you can't change the chairman without replacing the chairman so how about you do it <laughs> and I had this visceral response where it was almost like I put my hands down in front of me underneath the table and said no way it's called chairman for a reason <laughs> And then instantly all these excuses and reasons and stories started going circling through my head. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the smarts. I'm not definitely not smart enough to be a chair. Are you kidding me? Uh, I don't have the experience. I don't have the knowledge. But deep down, there was this element of excitement in my belly where I went, wow, I could become the chair of a national sporting organisation. That was never in my vision. It was never part of what's Lane going to do next, you know. And uh, and so I went, I just need five minutes. So I got up and I walked away from the table and I went to the bathroom and I just sat down in there where no one could interrupt me. And I just went, what is it about this opportunity that actually excites me? What is it about this opportunity that lights me up? Because at the moment, all I'm hearing is all the excuses and all the rational lies that I'm telling myself to give myself an out because... I'm coming from a place of not enoughness. Mm. And the first thing that came to mind was, well, it excites me because it extends my legacy. It also excites me because I have the confidence of my board to elevate me into that position. 
And I also know I have three very successful and very respectful executive chairmen on my board that I can tap into. And I have an extensive network of chair people that I know that if I picked up the phone and asked for their advice, they'd be willing to give it to me. So with that in mind, I walked back to the table and I sat down and went, okay, I'm gonna do it. But here's the thing, my biggest weakness in my toolkit is financial acumen. And you are 2IC at a, at a massive bank, you are gonna be my deputy chairman. And you're gonna you know, pick up the load when I'm feeling like I'm flailing behind. <laughs> so I, I pointed my deputy, I challenged the chairman, um, I literally got thrown under the bus in the first meeting because he was just expecting it to be a, a, a lay down was there. And he's like, oh, oh, you want it? All right, I'm not gonna challenge you. Here, you go, here's, here's the meeting, chair it. Right. So I was like, what? Um, okay, so what do I have? To, what, what's the process I follow? Okay, so uh, we look at the previous minutes and then what do I do? Do I ask, what do I ask? <laughs> he's gonna second them. First. <laughs> That's all you gotta do with a board. Do, I gonna... forward, do we forward a motion? Is that what we do? <laughs> or do you pass a motion? Mm. Forward, who, who forwards the motion to accept the record, the, the minutes as true and accurate? And who seconds that? All right, oh, so now, oh, look, now I've got it. Look at you, five years down the track, you got it. So <laughs> what, what I loved about that, and I often do tell this story, is because yeah. when you told me you, you never, what you didn't say at the time was I need five minutes. You just told me I just thought of this and I couldn't do it. I didn't have these girls, didn't have experience. And you, then you went on to tell me I thought about it and blah, blah, blah. And I remember I'm saying to you, so like how long was that process thinking that might have been a few weeks, months before you decided to go? And you just went, oh, I just went to the toilet. And I went, so a wee, that's all <laughs> took you to sit on the toilet. And yeah. Yeah. I do I do sort of, um, you know, often when we talk about imposter syndrome, it's, it's fine to have those feelings of, oh, you know, I, I don't have these skills, don't have the experience, but then what you can bring it and, what I find is very successful people like yourself don't don't spend too much time in that thing. They just move to, yeah, I reckon I could add some value here pretty quickly. Yeah, and the imposter syndrome is rife through women, isn't it? We have it so is. many excuses, reasons and stories as to why we can't do something. And and that classic Harvard study about if there's a, uh, a five-piece job description to fulfill and a woman applies for it well she won't even consider applying for it unless she fulfills all five of them and a man will apply for it if he only fulfills one of them so yeah you know we hold ourselves back and we limit ourselves based on these old stories and then we we wait for someone to give us permission to step in and own it and i must admit i don't know if i shared this with you when i told you the story it took me three years to own the role like it took okay. me three years i kept walking into the room waiting for someone to tell me i'm either doing a good job or a bad job but I never received any feedback, never received any counsel. It was just expected of me to step up and do it. And after about three years, I went, whose permission am I waiting for? <laughs> so it was, it was like the last, it was the AGM on the third year of my chair tenure. And I went, all right, it's mine now. <laughs> like I give myself permission. <laughs> that just reminds me of this. I remember um, Brené Brown, an interview with Brené Brown, and she... Um, did you I, interview Brené Brown? No, 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 I didn't oh. interview Brené Brown. It's oh. like, no, I was listening to an interview. And um, she was telling the time that Oprah asked her to come and do an interview. I don't think it was on the Oprah show, but it was with Oprah, like recording. And um, she's telling about she did the thing and then Oprah said, this was really good. We should do it again. And Brené Brown turns to Oprah and go, 
goes, are you sure? Do we need to get permission of someone? And Oprah just looked at her and go, who are you going to get permission of? <laughs> just like, exactly. So own it. Own it. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that at the interview too. It's really cute. Yeah, I love own it. it. But, but, yeah, whose permission are we waiting for to own it? And, you know, when are, what, at what stage do we believe we've done enough to be enough? <laughs> yeah. Because we can just choose to be enough right now if we want to be. Mm. Then we place all these limitations around that and boundaries and obstacles and we're just on this continuous evolution of not enoughness until one day we choose to be enough. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Hey, it's going to lead me to a couple of my crowdsourcing questions. (laughs) And one is um, what's the most important life lesson you've learnt from surfing Mm. that, that still applies to you now? The most important life lesson is go with the flow. Literally. <laughs> like, surrender. Yeah, surrender because um, I'm a self-confessed control freak and that's why surfing is so valuable, it's such a valuable part of my life because every day I enter into an environment and surrender to a force that's way more powerful than me. So I was doing a, a, a keynote last night for a um, for a bunch of women who are wanting to get involved in the surfing industry in a variety of different capacities, whether it's coaching or judging or within the industry as an employee. And they said, what's the, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned? I said, not to take myself too seriously because the ocean reflects my emotions. If I'm cocky and arrogant, it kicks my ass. If I'm angry and pissed off, it exacerbates it. But if I'm happy and accepting and just recognizing that that today's a different day to yesterday and and grateful that I actually have the time to be in the water, then it supports me with an abundance of opportunity and fun. Um, and it teaches me to giggle at myself because if I'm trying to, you know, put on a bit of a demonstration for the boys in the water and I fall off, I just have to giggle. I really just have to learn to laugh at myself. So I'm just grateful that the ocean works as such a mirror for my life and um, it's a daily reflection of where I'm at and what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling and it just basically says, oh, you're feeling this way, are you? Okay, let's match that up. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. So, someone else asked, um, do you have any aha moments when you're in the water? As in meaning sometimes we're out on the water, we go into our really creative or genius zone. Um, you know, for me, it's when I run, I come back really creative. Um, they wanted to know, does that happen to you? And what's been what's been one of your most creative genius aha moments while you've been on the water? Oh, my goodness. You needed to put this one through to me yesterday so I could give some time to think about it. This one actually just came through on Instagram about okay, half so an hour ago. Look, I, I'm a big, uh, I, I trust in the first thing that comes to mind. And it wasn't a very creative genius aha moment. It was actually a moment where I learnt how I address and deal with fear. And look, I've ridden some of the biggest waves in the world. I've, I used to ride 50 foot waves for fun. And I know what fear feels like. And I, and I love feeling fear because it brings me back to the present moment. And as a Gemini, I have a lot of, you know, I'm very easily distracted. I have a lot of things commanding my attention. It's like, oh, I see something shiny over there and squirrel over there. And, oh, oh, look at that. You know, so I'm just, what? Um, so fear brings me back to right here, right now. Short story, that is a really long one, but I'll make it short. 
I went surfing on a really big day on a very small board. Now, for those of you who are the uninitiated surfers, you ride a board that's equivalent to the size of the surf. So if it's a really big swell, you ride a really big board and that helps compensate for the paddling and because the bigger the wave, the faster it moves and there's a lot of power behind the ocean. So I made the, the judgment to go out on a very small board. Like my, I'm five foot five tall and my board is only five foot five. So that's kind of like a short board. And then as the waves get bigger and bigger, I'll go up to six foot, six, six, seven foot. This day, it, would, it really needed at least a six, eight maybe. And I went out on my five, five, but I decided to stay in the Northern corner, which is Kitty's corner down here at Freshwater. And I just stayed in this little rip bowl where I was just going around in the current, getting washed out, catching a wave, getting the current, getting washed out, catching another wave. But then I ran out of energy and the current took me before I could get another wave and it washed me all the way down to the middle of the beach towards the southern end and I got stuck in a rip. And right in that southern end, there's like a bit of a, uh, a bit of a reef out there and the waves are twice or maybe three times the size of what they were in the corner. I was tired, I was hungry, I was the only one in the water and there was no one on the beach and it was a day when there was no flags and I was starting to get a little concerned. So I've learned over time that uh, the best way to get out of a situation is to establish exit strategies. Yeah. <laughs> so in that moment in time, I took a really deep breath. I went, okay, what are my three exit strategies? Number one, catch a wave, unlikely. Number two, paddle to Queenscliff, unfavorable. And number three, paddle into the impact zone and get one on the head and get washed in, most likely. Okay, uh, and then what can I do to distract myself from the fear that's currently dominating my thought and, and my body? And I started singing. So the first song that came to mind was when the going gets tough, the tough get going. <laughs> So now I'm paddling. That, hang on, is that Bill, is that Billy Ocean? Billy Ocean. So Billy Ocean. And the going gets rough. <laughs> Tough get going. The going gets rough. So I'm paddling around singing. Unfortunately, no one else is out there. And a wave comes, and I went back to my three strategies. I'm like, just jump into the impact zone and get washed in. So I bailed out, got washed in, took my leash off, turned around, and went, "Thank you," and walked home. <laughs> you win. Oh wow. Yeah. That, so, that that sounds terrifying. It was a little scary. It wasn't terrifying. I'd never come home and tell Kirk I was really scared out there because then he'll say, right, you're not going back out. But <laughs> I was a little I was a little fearful. And so now when people say, so how do you address fear? I'm like, well, first, number one, acknowledge yeah. you're afraid. Number two, how you plan to get out of it. And number three, what's your distraction technique to ensure that you commit to that exit strategy? Yeah. I'd imagine that's one of the probably many things you uh, teach because, um, you know, you do keynote speaking and you run training all around mindset. Um, and I imagine that's some of the tactics and techniques you, you teach. Yeah, it depends what, how I feel on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a script. I don't have a set keynote and I, have, I don't have a set PowerPoint. So. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. I it's love it. Gemini in me, the variety oh, no. of no one... my life. Excellent. I love all that. So it might be a good time. What is the Awake Academy? You're a part of that. So what's that all about? Part of that? Yeah, I founded it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, well, you're a big part of that. Yes, I am. So Awake Academy is all about cultivating connection, growth and happiness in humanity. It's a self-empowerment portal and we offer no bullshit transformation. It's not a goal-setting course. It's a portal where we house courses to help people wake up. 
hence it's called Awake Academy. Yeah. Our first course is called Own Your Truth, helping people to wake up and own their shit and trust in love. It's all about helping people detach from fear, bring back the fun and find their flow. So it's a seven round self-paced course. There's 19 videos and that happens to correlate with the 19 years I was on tour. There's 29 workbook exercises, which happens to re- correlate with the 29 events that I won. And it's seven <laughs> rounds to go with the seven little time. Now, that's all organic. I know it's pretty cliche, but it was it's a It's a backstory. It's yeah, like it's a love of backstory <laughs> to everything. Hey, um, you mentioned Kirk before, which yep. is going to lead me to one of my other crowdsourced questions mm-hmm. is, um, first of all, this isn't a crowdsourced question, but he, he doesn't surf, does he? He can, but he, he can not to. Well, he, he does he, not. He can catch a wave if I push him into it. Did you teach him or could he? I did. And that was probably why he never wanted to surf again. (laughs) (laughs) So so the crowdsource question I got, um, people knowing you're married to a a literal rock star, is have you ever been tempted to learn the guitar? Yeah, he taught me one chord and that was it. He's as good a teacher of guitar as I am of surfing for him. He had no patience. <laughs> so you're leaving each other to the, your respective strengths. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Someone else did ask me a, another question, which I'm intrigued by, yep. is do you still wear your rings when you go for a surf? No. No. So clearly you used to, did oh, you? Oh, well, I lost it. I lost oh. it surfing and it was devastating because I lost it. So... I lost my wedding ring um, right before we got married, actually, because my wedding ring and my engagement ring were the one ring. And when we, um, when I lost it the first time, it was on a beach where there's no surf. So we went back three days later with a metal detector with a guy who had a metal detector that went underwater and we found it. So it was ridiculous, but miraculous. Yeah. And then several years later, I went surfing out here at Fresh Eve and I felt I'd Kirk and I'd started doing the five two diet, and I'd lost a oh. fair bit of weight. And I was lying in the sun one afternoon. I thought this is starting to feel really loose, but that's okay because when I if I fall, if I fall, I'll just put my hand in a fist, and that'll prevent my ring from ever going off. But of course, I fell, and it, it's almost like I felt the ring kiss the end of my finger, as if to say, "Oh, you think oh, you're in control? Yes. Yeah, bye." <laughs> Oh my god! Oh my god! I, I think was it... so heartbroken. I was devastated, but I was devastated. <laughs> I had to play it a little bit because the first time I lost it, Kirk was so angry that I I don't like seeing Kirk angry, and it, you know it makes me feel like I've I've really let him down. And one of the things I really don't enjoy is letting somebody down. So I was heartbroken, devastated, fearful. So I thought if I come home from the beach and I'm heartbroken, then maybe he'll be more compassionate. (laughs) I had wound myself up into such an emotional frenzy that he honestly thought my dad had died. Like that's how (laughs) devastated I was. And then he went, oh, honey, it's just a ring. I was like, oh, that one well. Strategy worked. (laughs) (laughs) I still had to buy myself another ring. He did go halves with me. But I love this new ring because it's um, very similar to the old one, but I got to place our irrespective birth ring, birth stones on either side. So there's ah. a ruby and an emerald on either side of the diamond. There you go. That's And nice. I never surf with it. And sometimes when I paddle out with it on, I'm like, <gasps> and it ruins my surf. <laughs> yeah, I could, well, I could imagine. You don't want to lose that one. Yeah, just on a side note, I, I remember coming to your place for dinner yeah. thinking I'd be able to sit down and have a drink with the two of you, and it was on one of your bloody 5-2 oh, days and what? we had no alcohol and... Um, Oh no, 
Well, it's a nice dish that could. Yeah, the meal was good. So, no, was good. Some chicken dish with lots of chili yeah. in it because I remember having conversation with him about the chili he was growing yeah. on his. Oh, yeah. Chili, turmeric, ginger, um, cumin. Yeah, it was, it was very tasty. Brown rice, chicken, broccoli, mm. parsley, lemon zest, lemon juice, and egg. Look how healthy is that? So one of my questions, let's go, let's go to one of my favourite questions. Oh, no, we'll leave that to the end because that's the end questions. Um, oh, I've I'd, I'd, I'd got no idea what I'm going to ask you You've next. got no idea, do you? How many have got no idea what I'm Just doing. a really successful podcast for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just... <laughs> Who the hell tunes into this thing? Some random is anyone, person. Anyone listening? <laughs> I, had to, I you know that's why I had to reach out to my you know famous celebrity friends like you to just have you found one in, <laughs> increase the the listenership from two to four maybe. yeah yeah go go call Dan Gregory I'm sure you'll increase your um <laughs> listenership from there okay no these are some of my um crowd surf questions so they're right pretty on. good they're pretty good um love to know what is the biggest professional or sporting doubt that Lane has faced and how did she overcome it? So I think we sort of talked a little bit about that. Yeah, becoming chair is definitely a professional doubt. Yeah. Um, I'm actually about to be elevated onto my first corporate board. (gasps) Exciting. Very exciting. Can you tell us who or not? No. Okay. (laughs) Not yet because it hasn't been officiated. Right, okay. Uh, But there was a big doubt around that one. There was definitely, look, I have this underlying challenge limiting belief that I'm not smart enough and that does its best to sabotage me at the pinnacle of growth and opportunity um now that came from it stemmed from playing charades in year nine in an English class and I could not work out how to play the word pin I really couldn't demonstrate a pin no sorry it was a needle I couldn't work out how to demonstrate a needle in charades. And I felt so ridiculed and so stupid because my teacher literally had to ask me to sit down and she'd complete it for me. And so that's where my not smart enough mentality comes from. Isn't it amazing how something can happen to us that, you know, your teacher probably wouldn't even, your teacher probably thought she was helping you out or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's had a lasting impact. Yeah. So when it comes to sitting on boards or leading organizations or starting my own. Um, I've had so many failed business attempts. You know, I've, I've had five clothing brands fail. Uh, I instantly resort back to that nine, year nine child or 14 or 15 year old that just says, look, you're not smart enough to do this. And um, even when I was, you know, we were signing really big contracts at Surfing Australia to build the high performance center. And I was sent it to, to, uh, to authorize it and I started crying because I thought I'm not smart enough to read this I don't I don't understand it so I rang one of my executive chairman board members who is in property and and development and I went I don't understand this am I just really stupid he goes no Lane you are not stupid they've written it in a way where you're not meant to understand it I was gonna say you're really (laughs) normal I can't I can't understand any contract I I, the amount of things I sign that I just go, you know what? Yeah. I'm just trying. I, I, I can't. I can't even be bothered wasting my time trying to understand it because I know I won't be able to understand it. Yeah. So you know, I have someone else that I give it to my husband or at least yeah. to read. There's someone so, who wants to read. Someone it. else who wants to read. Exactly. <laughs> 
work to your strengths. There, there, I've got another crowdsource question. What uh, advice would you give champion athletes who are transitioning from elite athletic performance to normal, in quotation marks, living? Give it time. It takes, mm. it takes time. It's not easy. Uh, tap into other people who have done it. And don't feel like you have to maintain a sense of relevance for the rest of your life. You know, one of the things that got the better of me was relevance deprivation. And so then I said yes to everything and everyone and end up with pneumonia because I was just saying, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, let's go and find that next passion. Yeah, let's do that. And saying yes to everyone and everything said, meant saying no to me, meant saying no to my husband and meant saying no to quality time in the water mm. and meant saying no to my quality of health. So I actually had to go and seek help when I retired because I felt so lost. I lost my structure and my identity. I lost, I felt like I lost everything, um, my mm. sense of belonging, my sense of community. So give it time. You know, I, was, I sat with John Howard at a lunch um, quite recently and I asked him, how long did it take for you to transition out of politics to being a granddad? And he said, four years. Yeah. Yes. And I said, well, what was it that helped you do that? And he said, well, of course, my family, but I just kept reflecting on all that I'd achieved. And I was so proud of that, that that kept boosting me, you know, kept elevating me and exciting me. But um, yeah, it, it's not easy and it does take time and we don't all land on our feet. You know, we're not all pussycats. So um, keep reaching out for help and support and guidance and counsel and yeah. And also recognize for athletes that are on their way up, the shoulders that you step on, are going to be the same shoulders on your way up. They're going to be the same shoulders you lean on on the way back down. So make sure you're building quality relationships while you're in a place of influence and power. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. It's it's also um, mm. I like the fact that you know like you know I guess we all want to be relevant and have yeah. value. But if we're saying yes and yes and yes to everything, yeah, it's like you said, you're saying no to something else, and it's normally uh, yourself or the people you love the most. Um, yeah, you're actually diluting your relevance. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And then what is it that you stand for? Yeah, if you don't stand for what something, you stand for nothing. You fall for everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... But that's a Lady Gaga song, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a sign, there's a uh, quote also that says, you know, to be successful, get good at saying yes, but to remain successful, be very good at saying no. I like that one. Very clear on what you say no to. Yeah. yeah, you can do that. that Actually, I need a bit of mentoring from you because I've come up with a model and I need you to help me decipher it. So <laughs> but we'll do that offline. <laughs> And for those people that don't know what we're talking about, being a model, I also help Lane be a model. No, you help me create models. I know. Gosh, you just keep like to twisting my words. I what is going on with you today? Hey, we're going to finish with some three super fast questions. Well, they don't have to be super. They don't have to be super fast at all, actually, because right. sometimes they lead to good stories. But they're three questions I love to ask everyone. Okay. This was the one I was going to ask you before, but I've left it for now. What is the one meal you love cooking? It's the one meal. I'm, I don't really love cooking much at all. <laughs> My husband's the cook, the cleaner, the laundry merchant. When I when I interviewed our mutual mate Janine Gardner and asked yes. this question, and she said anything I don't cook. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I do love baking. Oh, okay. So I love baking. I I have a very simple coconut cookie recipe, and I love baking that because it brings Kirk so much joy because he has one of those cookies every day with his coffee. 
Oh God! And you and you make pretty good um, um, blitz balls too. I do make good bliss balls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, balls. I've used and, your and protein I'm, ball recipe. Oh, good. And I'm an, I'm pretty good at pizzas as well, but I don't make the dough. I don't go to that extent. No, well, that's a little bit unnecessary. I think that's a little bit over yes, the top. Little, yeah. little You're just showing off. Yeah, I know. It just, you know, that's maybe a lockdown activity, but not, <laughs> not, even. not a normal activity. Okay. Now, you cannot answer in excess to this question, right? What's your favourite 80s song or artist? Wham! Hello. Oh yeah, Wham. Jeez. Oh, George, Mi- George Michael or Wham? No, my favorite eighties band. Yeah, song, artist, band, whatever. Pseudo Echo. Oh. Oh, jeez! I had a crush on Brian Cameron. I I had posters of them all over my wall, and apparently Kirk was good mates with him. Just ah. a little bit too late. Um, yeah, massive fan of Pseudo Echo. I am um, February last year. You're not listening. <laughs> I was too. Uh, February last year, before we went into lockdown, I went to one of the um, on the greens, and oh, it was yeah, it was Aha with the main act, and then Rick Astley. But pseudo, oh. pseudo Echo were the support act, and I, I tell you, they were better. They they were like they went they went off. They were so good. Well, that's how NXS really honed their craft. They were a lot of, they supported a lot of main acts. They toured with Queen, you know, they were toured with Adamant. And their objective was to blow the main act off stage before the main act got there. So it sounds like Pseudo Echo so, had the yeah. same. Objective. Did you like NXS when though? I did. Yep. Right. My first concert I ever went to was NXS when I was 14. So, and now you're married in to my daffodil jumper. I'm sure if Kirk saw me in the audience and saw, saw me, he'd be like, that is not my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, a goodness. classic, classic. Okay, final question. Okay. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Lighten the fuck up. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> Seriously, I was so fierce, so intense, so focused. And because I had that level of focus, I expected everyone around me to as well. So I I projected all of my stuff and expectations onto everyone around me and it just made life harder than it needed to be. So yeah. I really need to lighten up. So when did you do that? Because I mean, I've only, I've only, you know, we've only known each other well, not that long, and and I would say you are absolutely bloody lightened up, and you're fun, and you don't take yourself seriously, and you take the piss out of yourself, and um. So when when did you go from that to light? Two thousand and six. Wow, you you know the time. Yeah, because when I well, it was the end of two thousand and five, leading into two thousand and six. So. When I had my neck injury, so in 2001, I had a wave land on the back of my head, herniated a disc, severed 80% of my spinal cord, and I just left it alone for five years until it fired up and went, hang on, something needs doing about this. When I got an MRI, saw the extent of the damage, was told to retire and get surgery, and I didn't appeal to, that didn't appeal to me. So I decided to rest and give my body all of the work that it needed to recover. And that meant taking out all inflammatory, inflammatory foods and drinks out of my diet, no sugar, no alcohol, no red meat, no dairy, no gluten, no wheat, no yeast. Um, very similar to the chronic fatigue diet I had many years ago. Um, but also a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga, a lot of self-care, a lot of nurturing, a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness. And I basically dedicated myself to healing my body. But that also meant doing a lot of emotional healing. 
And mm. that's when I got really stuck into the, this thing called Biosync, which is if you, I mean, if you've read my book, you'll get a feel for it. Otherwise, Google it. They'll do a way better job of explaining it. Uh, but it's a practitioner that's essentially putting their elbow in the most painful parts of your body to to transmute the energy that's stuck in that region, because any physical pain has an emotional component. And when I got in touch with the emotional and the mental and the physical, I then started to become more self-aware of how my thoughts were affecting how my fear my feelings and then how my feelings were affecting my behaviors and how my behaviors were impacting my results yeah when i became aware of that cycle i then was able to then start taking ownership and making choices about what was right for me and uh instead of reacting to the world's events i started responding to circumstances and then I, I literally learned how to lighten up. I literally, I lightened my load. I let, I let go of a lot of stuff. Uh, and I still do that work. I still do a lot of emotional work. I think things called rebirthings and which are just breathing exercises. I, um, yeah, I, I'm a very introspective and, um, what's another, yeah, best way to, to refer to me is very introspective. I, I tend to, receive information i sit with it and i work with it and I, I i dance with it i understand how do i feel about this how does it impact me what does it say about me what does it say about them for example um and what part did i play in this mm. so yeah that's that's when it really started to shift so when i came back in 2006 and won my seventh world title in a state of love ease grace and gratitude versus fear-based which was two to seven, two to six um it was a completely different mindset. And a lot of my peers kept saying, you seem a lot lighter. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I would come out of the final and not win it. And last year I'd be bawling my eyes out. This year I'm like, yeah, that was a final. I made the finals. It sounds like a lot more fun. It was a lot more fun. Yeah, for, yeah. for both yourself and I'd imagine the people around you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Lane Beachley, as always, is such an amazing, inspirational woman and, and uh -huh. you know, down to earth and light and fun, <laughs> fun to talk to. Thank you for sharing your insights with us and um, all the best with whatever you, well, everything you're doing. You're making, can continue to make the difference you're making. I certainly will. It's what gets me up every day because my personal why is awakening others awakens me. So I trust I've awakened you, maybe a little. You have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lane. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Authentic Leadership Podcast. We welcome your suggestions for leaders you would like to hear from in future episodes.